0: Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host, she is loving superstore on Netflix,
1: Leanne Hughes.
2: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you book out five more workshops for every workshop that you deliver. Now, last week on the show, we had Truett Black. He was sharing, well, you know how you constantly, I mean, I don't know if this happens to you, but you work with a client over time and then you like, okay, I'm stuck in this routine. I need some new ideas, new activities. i I'm sure that that hits you as well. Uh, Chord shares how he gets inspired to create new activities for his workshop. So tune into that one if you haven't already. Um, this week, I'm joined by a return visitor, a return guest. Her name is Deborah Zahn, and she's from The Craft of Consulting. Now, this is a very special interview because I am joined by a bunch of incredible co-hosts today who are members of the Booked Out Facilitator Program. So we have some really just incredible interview questions from Yoko Van Dam. Prina Shah, Deanne Gagnon, Rose Allett. Um, And I just love the opportunity to share the the microphone around because you just get really diverse questions that are all immediately relevant. So um, I hope you found this incredibly helpful. The aim of this call was really for all of us to collectively pick Deb's brain on consulting, on how to pick up work as a facilitator, what we can do to stand out, how can we market ourselves, identify our target audience, build our pipeline, How do we write proposals and how on earth do we decide what to charge? And in this one, I share an example of something I worked with Deb on and her immediate response back to me was, you're undercharging, Leanne. So we talk about that in this episode. Deb was on fire in this interview. I've listened back to it a couple of times. You'll be enthralled when she shares her story of winning a request for proposal And she's just so confident in sharing her stories and experiences so openly with all of you. So Deb is a sought-after consultant with 10 years of successful consulting under her belt. As a go-to source in her market, she routinely brings in six and seven-figure years and has built a steady, reliable pipeline of work. As a consultant, Deb is especially known for her ability to cure decision-making disorders with individuals and groups. She's also earned a reputation as the closer, the consultant who can get high value contracts with hard to get clients. And over the last decade, Deb has coached countless new consultants and helped them fast track their success. If you're listening in real time, Deb is also throwing a free live masterclass on the 20th of August, 2021. Details on that are linked in the show notes for this one, or you can check out her website at craftofconsulting.com. By the way, that site is worth checking out anyway. She has incredible templates, worksheets, and an awesome blog to help you along as well. Deb is also the host of the Craft of Consulting podcast. I was a guest on there, actually. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it's all about getting consultants to share their strategies and insights for building their businesses and delighting their clients. Don't forget to reach out to Deb to say hey. And of course, you can continue the conversation when the podcast is over by joining our community of over 1,500 facilitators from all over the world in the Flipchart Facebook group. You can also support the show and my idea habit, which is drinking coffee, by heading on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Leanne Hughes. Deb's contact details, everything else mentioned in this show is over in the show notes at firsttimefacilitator.com forward slash episode 185. Now, onto the show. I'm really pumped to welcome on to the First Time Facilitator podcast today. I've got a very special guest in Deb Zahn. Hey, Deb. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. And I've also got a panel of amazing facilitators that are joining us today in a group podcast conversation. So Deb, I might just start off. We're really focusing this conversation. It's kind of like a follow-up to the one that we had previously, where you spoke about you've come out from corporate work, you still do the corporate work but you also help new consultants grow their business. Now, in the Booked Out Facilitator program, we talk about three buckets, your content bucket, your craft bucket, and your connections. And I'm really curious to hear you re-engineering a story on how you landed a dream gig. Have you got a story for us to kick off?
1: I do indeed. And I'm bringing up the big guns for this one because I want to inspire you of yeah. You know, first of all, I think those are three really great ones and the interplay between them really can nail getting a client versus not getting a client. So this one, I'm going to highlight the thought leadership because it was actually a group of folks that we were talking to myself and a few other folks who didn't know us. And so we couldn't rely on our connections, even though we had given them references of people they knew. So really, we had to show up and dazzle <laughs> in order to get this contract. And to give you a sense of what was on the line, it was a $1.2 million contract with a state. I thought that might get attention. It was with a, a state in the United States and they were looking to hire a small group of folks to help them implement an initiative that they got a whole bunch of federal money for. And one of the biggest pieces of it was what they called stakeholder engagement. So their expectation is that Whoever they gave the award to was going to go around the state and facilitate multiple groups, and it would be workshops and it would be a facilitated discussion. It would be listening sessions. It could be a whole bunch of different things. But what they wanted is at the end of it, that whatever was going to be designed would have the fingerprints of people all around the state. And it was really high stakes because they had an advocacy community that was reasonably very vocal about the state just bullying everybody and pushing them around and they wanted this to be done differently. So the stakes were enormously high and they were only looking for folks who could actually do that. So we went in, we had sent a proposal, they asked us to come in for an interview and there was a number of other things that were part of the contract, but they got to me because I was going to be leading the entire facilitation part around the stakeholders And I had already sussed out a little bit that the person who was the decision maker, because I paid attention to and I asked who was the decision maker ahead of time, that he was a a bit of an intellectual. He was a thinker. And he had the reputation for just really not, he didn't just want to know what you were going to do. He wanted to know what was backing that up. And so I had gotten that intel ahead of time. I did my homework. So even though I had been, facilitating for a really, really long time, I still did my homework. And I said, you know what, what's the latest and best thinking about facilitation relative to this type of stakeholder engagement? And so I found a number of frameworks and Played with them a bit, got used to speaking them out loud. So I actually said them to myself in a mirror so that the first time the words came out of my mouth wasn't when I was in front of the client. So I had that muscle memory of saying it. These are tricks you all are quite familiar with. So they asked us a question of how we propose to do the engagement. And I said, before I answer how, the first question we have to answer is where on the continuum of engagement do you want to land? And I described the framework, everything from, do you want them to just perform or inform? Do you want them to consult? You want to just involve them? You want to collaborate? Or you really want to share leadership? And I laid out the framework. And then before they could answer, I said, let me tell you where we think it makes the most sense to land, given your context." And I landed them at the collaborate and lead and shared leadership. And I explained why. And I could see his eyes just started lighting up. And then I explained the how, and I continued to reference the framework as to how we were going to do this was going to enable them to stay in the right zone. Some of the people in the room translated that into meaning we're not going to get beat up by people who are mad at us because we yet again did it wrong. And the answer to that question got us the gig. And I know that because the client told me that later. He's like, like you guys were kind of answering things in very similar ways to other people. He said, you nailed that. I walked out and I'm like, we're hiring them.
2: Ah, There's so much gold in that. And I think that's kind of, that's really encouraging. I love, it's such a baller story, like the seven figure contract, but also a little bit scary in that like our our big gig could be make, we could make it or break it on the, the response that we have in the moment. So you've shared a couple of strategies. One was like practicing it beforehand. The other thing that I liked was that you didn't accept the question. The question was straight away, like, how would you do it? And you actually took it a level above. Yes. Brought in your, the framework. And then the solution was like, well, we need to buy into that, that framework. That's gold. Thank you for sharing that. Well, actually, possible? if I oh, sorry, say Deb.
1: one, one little thing about that is again, it- it's reading the room. We were, I think the third or fourth folks that they were talking to that day. So as soon as I heard them ask that question, I knew that everybody had answered that question exactly as it was stated. So one way to differentiate ourselves was to give them something no one else was giving them. And that was a cue that probably everybody had just said, oh, here's how we're going to do it. So I guess,
2: my uptake would be, well, I guess my lesson learned would be never accept the question, like just try and divert like every great politician. So let's just study up <laughs> yeah, on the politicians of right. the world. My pastor, Yoka, who's got a, a few questions up her sleeve, that really based as well. I know, Yoka, you've got a question around how Deb has built her pipeline of clients. I don't know if you wanted to ask that one. And just to the group as well, if you do have any follow-up related to the, the current topic of conversation, just raise your hand, pop it into chat, and we'll go to you as well. Over to you, Jorka.
0: Hey, Deb. It's so awesome to have you here. Thanks for that gold dust. I'm van Dam. I'm calling in from South Africa, and I'm really focusing on building teams and leaders, confidence, helping them empower their voice. But I've also done a lot of work with sales teams, and they always want to know, how do you build the pipeline, especially if they're starting from zero? And I think specifically for us as consultants, coaches, and trainers, that'd be really worthwhile to know.
1: Generally, how I look at a pipeline is I look at it over time. So what you do at the beginning isn't necessarily what you're going to do when you're midway through and and then as you continue to operate. So generally, my experience has been at the beginning, you're going to go with folks that are either in your network or the networks of the folks that are in your network. So you're trying to get basically folks who are as warm as possible. So they know you or they know you by reputation, or they know that there's somebody who respects you, who who they can be influenced by. And so generally what I have folks do at the beginning is to develop what I call it because I make hot sauce. So everything's related to that. So it's a hot list and a medium hot list. (laughs) And I don't worry about the mild at the beginning, But the reason for that is, is I was actually working with a group of consultants who were starting from zero. And what they did is they took every single person they know in their network and they started trying to work that list, but they didn't segment the list and they didn't prioritize those that were going to likely have the highest yield. So what I have them do now, this assumes by the way that you've identified who your ideal clients are, you've identified your market and your niche and you have figured out your value proposition. So now if you know all of that, if you don't know all of that, then you can put anybody on a list and it's still going to be hard to get clients. But if you know that, then you look at the folks who are within your network and you segment them. And it's really simple to me. As like the hot prospects are folks that I know that I can get a meeting with pretty easily. Like it's very simple as that. I know I can get in front of them. I know they know me or they know my reputation well enough that they'll be pleasantly predisposed to me when they're in front of me. And I know enough about them often based on research that they do things that I know I could likely help them with. They care about things that I suspect I can help them with. They're in a circumstance like a change in leadership or they just brought something new to market or whatever it is that tells me that they're probably in a point where they're having some pains and aspirations I might be able to help them with. That's my hot list. And that's who I work first, because it's going to have a higher conversion rate. It's a smaller number, but it's going to have a higher conversion rate. It is worth my extra time to pursue them because outreach takes a lot of time. And I do direct outreach. It takes time, but these folks are worth it. The medium hot or just kind of a step down from there, which is I could probably get a meeting with them. They may not know me directly, but they know enough about me that they're going to be somewhat disposed to talk to me. And I maybe don't know everything about what's going on in their world, but I have some decent reason to believe that I might be able to help them. In your cases as facilitators, you might know that they do workshops. So I have a client that I know loves retreats, like they're retreat junkies. And so that's really helpful to know that (laughs) because... That's in my bailiwick. That's the type of things that I can help them with. And those will be the folks that I also work at the same time because that could be a longer lead time to be able to get in front of them. So I do both of those lists simultaneously, putting most of my effort into my hot prospects. That generally is what will generate sales at the beginning. Obviously, there's other things that go into actually booking that deal, but. You have to pay attention to the mid and long game too. And that's really where the marketing and networking comes up. So that is where, when I started as a consultant, social media, I mean, when I started as a consultant, computers were kind of a thing, but it wasn't really the social marketing presence that it have now. I do encourage most new folks, yes, you have to build a presence where you start to build visibility, recognition, and get people to know, like, and trust you, which I'm sure you've talked a whole bunch about before. That's basically trying to warm people up so that by the time you do actually contact them, they are predisposed to want to talk to you, and they recognize that you have some value. I generally personally do not do cold calls. I don't think they're bad. I think there is a decent way to do them. Most of the ways people do them are icky and gross. So if you do anything even mildly better, you will stand out. But I generally work on trying to warm folks up and you can do things that you're very familiar with, like invite people to free webinars where they get real value, not the fake version where you promise them value. They don't quite get it, but they have to pay for the actual value that. Destroys trust, but doing things where they get real value. I've sent people articles before that I knew they would care about. I've sent them opportunities before that I knew they would care about. I've asked clients that I've had, Do you know anyone else who could use X, Y, and Z? And they invariably say, Yeah. And I say, Great. Will you introduce me? And I tell you what, I'll write the email for you to make it easy. So I make it as easy as possible for everyone in my network to do what I'm asking them to do. And to also do it in a way that I know that it matches my value and it matches how I want to present in front of potentially new clients. So the short game is work your network, work your hot sauce. <laughs> and then I would say from there, you got to think about the time it takes to actually start to warm up leads. And then once you start getting clients that's when the repeat business and the referrals can then kick in. And at this point, the majority of my work comes from repeat business and referrals. So that was
0: absolutely amazing. I, I've i made two pages of notes here, <laughs> specifically <laughs> on the hot sauce. But something that was really interesting was you were saying that if people don't even have their target audience defined, which was my second question, then they can't even start putting that list together. So I was actually coaching a client yesterday and we were also talking about market research and I said to her, well, I actually think you first need to determine your target audience before starting to talk to anyone. Yep. What would your guidelines be to
1: determining target audience? Is there any um, help there? You bet. So, I actually have a tool for this, which I'm happy to make available because I do think it's important to start with the who, because who it is you expect to talk to drives everything. It drives what market and niche you're going to be in, it drives what you're going to say to them that's actually going to be valuable to them, it drives what type of questions you're going to ask, it drives all of the things that you're going to do to actually get business and make a sale. So, I like starting with the who, and basically, I look at the intersection between what your actual expertise is in. So really, what can you do very, very well that you feel confident that you're going to deliver value? I look for, do you have results that you can brag about? Even if it's not in your current career, maybe it's from a past career, but you still have something that you can show up and say, yeah, that I was able to achieve X, Y, and Z. And then you look at... I do include passion in there because if you're going to do all this work to get business, you darn well better want to get up in the <laughs> out of bed for it when you finally do get it. And then putting together your expertise, your passion, your results, then you start to be able to figure out, okay, what could that person look like? And this is where I do encourage folks to get a little creative and to invent a person. Now, when I was uh, defining my ideal client, I did a composite of, of people, but her name was Carol. And I gave her a name, and she had cats, of course. I basically went through and thought, and then I could figure out, who is she? Is she the CEO? Is she the COO? Is she in charge of human resources? Is she in charge of the training department? Because the answer to that question is going to change who you approach and what you say to them and what value you describe to them. So then I get really detailed about, okay, if she's the CEO, what's freaking her out right now? What's making her life harder? What is it that just is driving her crazy such that she would want to pay to fix it? <laughs> what is or What are her aspirations that just would light her up and make her feel accomplished if these things were able to be accomplished for herself and within her company. So I get nitty gritty about who this person is because that becomes the basis by which I define my value proposition. And my value proposition is all based on how I help solve or alleviate those pains and how I help them achieve the things that they aspire to. And it's not enough to say I do that for a company because everybody in the company has different positions. Everybody worries about different things. A chief financial officer cares about really different things than a CEO who might be more interested in legacy than the immediate bottom line. So I have to know very precisely who I'm really targeting to be able to define a value proposition that resonates with that type of person specifically. And again, I have a tool for this that I'm happy to share. It's a free tool that I offer.
0: That would be amazing. The The tool that I think I heard from Leanne originally was the Empathy Map. And I've used that many times that you see on um, GameStorming. We've also like amazing that. tools and ideas. I wanted to also ask you, um, oh, okay, I might- with this client, oh, just last one. I oh, said yeah, to one more than she we was working something. at a client's and I was saying to you identify someone in the company you're working at who would be the ideal clients and maybe mirror them and actually identify what they are like. So that could also be an idea.
2: I'm Dan Leanne. (laughs) That was a comment, not a question. I love that. Thank you, Yoko. And I'm sure you got some more. So I just want to share the microphone around a bit. And of course, we've got time. We'll go back. Um, Of course, Prina had a follow-up question, Deb, to the example that you blew us away with right at the beginning. Prina, would you like to ask your question?
0: deb hello i am prina and i'm based in perth western australia and my question to you is it sounds exactly like you said so you won that gig from the pain points that the client talked about in terms of oh we don't want to deal with the customer complaints the stuff coming at us had you and your team considered the pain points beforehand and done your
1: research with
3: all. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So my superpower in getting business is preparation. When I think about, it's the boring stuff, right? It's the I will look people up on the internet. I will see if they've been they've done any videos. I don't stalk their personal stuff because that's weird, unless unless I know them, in which case I want to see, oh my gosh, is your dog still alive? (laughs) I do that. But I looked it up and I also talked to people. So I knew people within that state and I knew enough to ask, so what's the flavor of stakeholder engagement in this state? Because it's it's different everywhere. And they're like, oh Lord, you wouldn't believe what happens here. So I knew enough. And then I also asked about who I knew the decision maker was so that I could adjust how I was going to do this based on that. And then I, I use, I personally like a, a toolbox approach. I also, just in case, practice some things that I put into my toolbox in case I needed to bring them out because it was a group interview. So I knew I wasn't just speaking to him. I knew that there are often go figure group dynamics and there sure was. There ended up being a little tiff between him and somebody else while they were interviewing us. And I was able to navigate that
2: because I had done that prep. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast and and they were talking about psychics and it was was pretty funny, but they're saying, look, any psychic, can just go onto a website and see like where you love hanging out and then jump on a call. Not that I'm saying there's anything, I believe in some of this stuff, but
1: yeah, it's just kind of funny. (laughs)
2: Like it is pretty easy to find out a lot about people if you look at tweets and things like that. That's right. Like, I don't
1: look, are you a Virgo? And then I like make a list or something, you know. I am a Virgo. Well done, Deb. Look how good she is. All
2: right. Um, We've got a question from Deanne. He's joining us in Canada. Thanks. Thanks,
3: Dee. Hi, Deb. Like Leanne said, I'm Deanne. I'm in Ontario, Canada. So it's bright and early for me here too. You kind of touched on the hot list, which I also have two pages of notes here from that, and then a bit on the value proposition, but I'm very early in my journey. I'm just wondering, do you have any quick tips for someone who is just brand new starting out? I'm literally just putting myself out there.
1: Yeah. So hearkening back to what I said, earlier, the most important first step is to really work out the ideal client, the market, the niche, and then what your value is related to them What I've seen is for folks that are new who skip that, and people often skip it because they either don't know they have to do it or they skip it because it scares them because they get into a perceived scarcity place and they think, I'll never get clients if I narrow the potential pool that I'm after. The problem is then you have a scattershot approach to doing everything you're doing, and it's going to be harder to nail clients because you It's going to be much more difficult to say and do things that will resonate with who will actually hire you. So, I would say that is the first thing to do. And then, again, based on that, start to work your network. When you're working your network, the most important thing I was actually talking, I was actually recently helping two women who were brand spanking new and they had a bunch of meetings with folks in their network and nothing clicked. And They mimicked something that I said, and it actually started to work for them. And now they're completely booked within three months. And basically, they turned it around and they made it about the prospective client. What they had been doing is they were going in and doing the resume reading and making it all about them because they thought their job was to impress The client that they were awesome and great and you should hire us. And instead, what they switched it around to is they had done their homework and they started talking to the prospect about what was happening in his world and what some of those pressures were and asking questions about how they were prepared to respond to that or what some of the challenges were. He starts doing this because he's like, finally, someone's listening to me about, about this the, the pressures that I'm facing. And then they had practiced what I call some, they asked questions to further get nuance and understand. But again, the whole time the orientation was towards the prospective client and his world. And then when they saw that there were some things that they could potentially help them with, they said, and this is sort of my magic line you know what? I just heard two things that we think we could be helpful with. Are you open to talk about those? And the guy's like, oh my gosh, what can you help with? And by the end of it, they had their first gig. And Amazing. so that orientation is critical because so if, if you don't skip the first part, you figure out who you should be talking to and what they care about you are targeting the right people that are likely going to have the highest yield and then you're making it all about them, that tends to be the winning combination. And the more you practice that at the beginning, the better.
3: That's amazing information.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks, Deb. I do have a question from Joe who submitted but I just want to talk about, get on this train of thought of, first of all, of actually not being so focused on yourself, but on the, how you can help someone else. And you talk about your solutions. Hey, I've got two solutions for you. Majority of people in this group, myself for the first two years, my solution was always, we'll run a workshop. Okay, that was it. One solution. We are branded as facilitators, but we can do so much more. I think the power of facilitation is you you really rate it as like a key skill of any consultant. Can you share with us, I mean, a lot of us sort of, we have branded ourselves that way. So we have that sort of default of going, I'll do a workshop. How do we top level what we can actually offer to clients
1: yeah i'd say the first thing is don't start with the thing start with the outcome and by the way i saw somebody ask like how did i switch up when covid took over all of our lives and this is the this is also the answer to this question which is what is it that they're actually trying to achieve what do i know about what it takes to achieve that Whose minds do they have to change? What systems have to be altered? What new knowledge and skills do they have to have? And so you look at it from the point of view of what actually achieves that outcome. And then facilitation, which can look a whole lot of different ways, a workshop is one of those, becomes tools that you pull out of your toolkit to say, all right, what then can actually create what I just said will get them to that solution? And that reorientation, I think, is the best way to do it. And again, there's a client that I worked with, I've worked with for many years, the folks who just love the retreats. I've actually told them they're not allowed to do any more retreats because it's not getting them the solution. And they feel like, like, oh, man, just give me one, just just one. And we have completely switched up how we work with them because we've reoriented towards the outcome. And we basically said, here are the things that have been most successful in actually helping you achieve that. Don't worry, we'll do some fun stuff too. And we switched up how we did fun stuff, but we basically mixed it up because we stayed focused on the prize at the end and that's the outcome they want. And I did the same thing during COVID where I said, yes, I facilitate, but I do other things What's the most helpful thing that people need right now? And then I will pick the what out of my toolkit.
2: Yeah, it's up to us as like the sort of trusted advisor or expert to then provide the methodology and use facilitation to underpin that as well in terms of, well, mean it's such a great tool, right? Even stakeholder engagement, change, anytime you want to create some sort of transformation in an organization, you're leaning on those facilitation skills. So thank you for sharing that. We've got words like profound coming up in chat. I love that. Deb, you're going great. Do you need a drink of water or anything?
1: We're just like throwing well, uh, these questions at you. Just <laughs> okay. Forgive all the cats in the background. If anyone is on the East Coast of the US and needs a cat though, let me know. Okay, go we'll run. put the call out. We'll have to get this podcast <laughs> out soon. So <laughs> oh, there we go. Uh, so Joe
2: Alilovich in Perth asked this question. She says, we hear so much about the power of one, one ideal client, one topic of expertise, one offer, one price. Yet I find that thought leaders tend to have a number of different offers. Or they move from one to the next after a period of time. What are your thoughts on the power of one? And when do you recommend that a consultant moves to a new offer or to a new client?
1: Yeah, I'm more in the camp of the power of one to help you get started. (laughs) So I work with all kinds of different folks. But I didn't start getting my first clients until I... focused down. And I was afraid to do it because, again, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'll never get enough business if I go too niche. But it helped me at the beginning. It helped me solidly figure out what I'm going to do. Then as I got experience, it was much easier to expand. It was much easier. I started to get attention of folks who were in different sectors. And so it was easier to expand. So I don't have just one offer. And partly because I would get bored with it. And I think my excitement matters, so it's okay to have more than one. But there are a certain number of things that I am hands down known for, and that helps me attract clients. So people know, sort of the joke is, I cure decision-making disorders. So if there are groups of people who cannot come to agreement You bring me in and I will help get them to agreement. That's the main type of facilitation I do. I do workshops. I do other things too. It's helpful to be known for that because other consultants, lawyers, other clients will say, oh, you know what? This is a nightmare. Can we just bring Deb in? So that's helpful for me to attract business. But I prefer personally seeing what a client truly needs to get to the outcome they want And then to think about what can I do to help achieve that? And if I have gaps, who do I want by my side to give them a complete solution? I think that adaptability can be really helpful. So I do sort of the short version is I do a hybrid approach. There are definitely things I am known for, and I promote those things that I am known for, but I am not locked in. When I started, however... I focused on a very specific niche because I'd been spinning my wheels for six months and going to tea and drinks. And I was basically waterlogged with nothing to show for it.
2: None of us want to be there, but we've we've been there. (laughs) I just wanted to share a quick story that I might go back to Yoko for a question if no one else would like to. Yeah, just raise your hand if you would like to. But um, Deb, I think it was earlier this year, you reached out to me about just getting on a quick 40-minute call with one of your clients in the US about virtual facilitation. And I mean, I talk about virtual facilitation all the time. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. I just wasn't too sure how much to price it at. Uh, a few things, and I wanted to be really open with this group and those listening on the podcast, but it, this comes really natural to me. I've been talking about it for ages. I do a lot of free work on it. So just jumping on a call, I, I didn't really want to price it that high. So I said to you, okay, five fifty US dollars for 40 minutes. And you came back to me, and you and I was you, like, what? "Wait, what? <laughs> well, yeah." And then she was like, "No, no eight hundred US dollars." I was like, Are "You kidding? Okay." And it was in like the space of a couple of days, and so I was like, "Oh gosh!" And we never really know, right? But my consultants like what people charge. So, can you tell me what you were thinking when you saw that, and why you upped the rate yes. for me? Thank you. By the so way, so
1: first of all, it's almost like a tick with me if I see that someone under what I consider underpricing. I will talk with them about it. If I'm who can dictate what the price is, I typically raise it because the most common affliction is that folks underprice themselves. So I think the most common things that happen, Leanne, I don't know if, if this was happening with you, is that folks think in terms of the amount of time and effort it takes them to do something. And then they price it relative to that as opposed to the value of what you're doing to the folks on the inside. So we brought Leanne in because myself and someone else who are seasoned facilitators, and I knew I don't hold a candle to this one. She's next to me on my Zoom. There were things that we didn't know that we needed to make this meeting really stand out. And so I said, rather than us spinning our wheels trying to figure it out. The client has money. We knew the client had money because they just got a bunch of money from the feds. Let's bring in someone who can just shortcut this for us, knows what she's doing and and can give us some insight. And by the way, they're obsessed with your start at three minutes after thing. Like the CEO talks about it constantly. It's hilarious. So that's what we did. And I knew that I was buying intellectual property. I knew I was buying expertise and experience And it was valuable to me to do that because she was going to save us and therefore the client a whole bunch of time and energy. I had this happen recently with someone else who quoted a price and I swear I misheard something because it was so low. And I said, why on earth would you charge that? She then went immediately to lower the price. I'm like, no, 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 stop. (laughs) I'm like, that's not what I'm asking. I said, why that price? She said, because it only takes me an hour to do it. And I said, but- The value to me is enormous. I could make that up with, in this case, I could make that up with a single sale by, you know, times 20. So it really comes down to what is the value for who is willing to buy it to achieve the outcome they want. And that's what the price should be based on. Even if you're charging an hourly rate, you still think about the value of of what you're doing for the folks that are on the outside. And I will tell you that when I first started, I was not able to set my hourly rate because I worked at a firm and it was like lawyers rates. And I thought no one's going to pay this. Yeah. Everybody pays it. Everybody pays it if they get value and they're glad to pay it again.
2: Amazing. Oh gosh. Yeah. let's all play that back. Yeah, for every reason that you said, Deb was like, oh, yeah, I talk about it all the time. It's easy. It takes me no effort. I don't even need to prepare for this, et cetera. And that's why I actually thought 550 for 40 minutes of my time was all right. But yeah, I'd take the 800. Uh,
1: Well, the reason you you didn't have to prepare for it is because all of the experience behind you, if I reached out to someone who had less expertise than you had, then it would take them longer. And then I'd pay them more than you, which doesn't make any sense.
2: Awesome. All right. this is It's a good way of thinking. gozzi just asked a question about the three-minute thing. Uh, so what that is, Gozi, is Deb was saying that this client, a lot of them were coming to meetings late. They'll just dial in five past the hour. So I said, we'll make the meeting start at three past ten. People will see that in their calendar and get really curious around it. And you find that with a really precise time, there's brain science around it. People arrive at that time. So when I run workshops for clients, I'll always give them a random, like, let's come back at 10.37. And they're like, huh? And and then, but they're all back. They're all back at 10.36. So then I explained the brain science afterwards. So yeah, it is quite effective. Magic. Yeah, it is. It's magic. I don't do that for these calls. I should though. Uh, Deanne, you've got a follow-up question for that. Then Yoko will go to you.
3: Yeah, Deb, I was wondering when you're speaking of pricing, then how do you determine where to start with your pricing? I've Again, because this is very new for me, I think that imposter syndrome kicks in pretty (laughs) quickly where immediately, um, I know Leanne, you've (laughs) talked in the Yeah, what's that? (laughs) Where you've said how, I remember you saying one of your first proposals, you cut your price down before even talking to anyone about it. So how do you determine where do you start on pricing?
1: So... It's several things, and I actually have a free webinar on this, which, if folks want to, or a replay of a webinar I do on how to price your services. If Leanne, is it okay if I put that in chat? Absolutely, I will put it in the show notes as well. Okay. So, first of all, it's a lot of different things that is sort of a combination of knowledge that you get about your market. So, understanding what the range of pay is that people are paying not just the range of the amount, but how people are paying. And I explained this in the webinar. There are different pricing models. I prefer the value-based one, which is basically I'm charging for the value of the outcome and I'm charging enough that I don't have to worry about time. And it's worth it to them because that outcome's worth it to them. I prefer the flexibility of doing things that way. There are sometimes I don't do it If it's really, really confused about what's going to happen and why I can't estimate how much effort it will be, I might switch to hourly. I explain in there. So you got to know your pricing model. You need to know within the market sort of what the range is. And I have found asking other people, including when asking other facilitators, other consultants, asking people who have hired them before, what are they generally paying for what most people will be very forthright. Sometimes they won't. They'll think it's proprietary, whatever. But you can find people who will actually give you information about what they're willing to pay and what they're paying for. That helps you get a range. And then you stop and you vow to yourself that you will not be at the bottom of that range. And you make a solemn oath. (laughs) (laughs) that you don't put yourself at the bottom because what happens is people think that they have to compete on price and you're not competing on price. You're competing on value. So as long as you believe that you can help clients achieve good outcomes that they care about, don't go below the middle because price communicates value. So if you try and be the bargain basement consultant even if you get hired, they will perceive that they got less value and they won't value you as much. So you want to make sure that you're not in the group that are trying to desperately get work based on price. But the other thing you want to do is you want to include your life in this, right? Because often what happens is people start to price things and then they're kind of working on their financial plan. And then they click enter at one point and it says that they have to work 80 hours a day in order to make that outcome, (laughs) exaggerating only slightly. And so you also want to think about what do you want your life to look like? What do you want your day-to-day life to be like? How much do you actually want to, on average, spend working? And what are the other things that matter to you that you want to make sure you don't have to figure out how to squeeze in or feel guilty because you're neglecting? So that goes into the calculation too, and then you take that market information, you take what you know about how much you want to work, you play around with some pricing models, and you just start to play with that number until you come up with Here's the model and here's a number for this type of work that I think is reasonable, knowing that you'll adjust it when you're in front of a client. Then go share that with some people who you trust, who aren't going to be naysayers, who aren't like haters, but people who will be honest with you and care about you as a person and know about your market and ask them, what do you think about this? If they say, oh, that price seems kind of high, ask them, what do you think would make that worth it? If they say it's too low, ask them, what ranges have they actually seen? It's through that type of iterative process before you put it out to market, which can be done actually pretty quickly. It doesn't have to be this huge scientific thing, because then you're going to go to market and you're going to see what happens. And so if you are in front of a prospective client and you say your price and they go, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds great. You're too low. <laughs> that's, so that's your signal that you're too low. And if they have some objections, that doesn't necessarily mean it's too high. That means that you're going to have a conversation with them about how to make sure the value fits the price and that the scope matches the, the a reasonable price. Then you make adjustments as needed.
3: Amazing. Thank you so much, Deb. That's invaluable information.
1: Yeah. I have
3: a feeling I'm going to be listening to this podcast on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> There's just you. so much solid gold in here. <laughs> I know, Deb. You've really,
2: you've, you've brought it, Deb. Thank you so much. And we've got the webinar link as well. So you can watch that over and over again as well, Dee. We've probably got time for two more questions. We'll see how we go. We've got Yoka next and then Rose. Yoka, over to you for your question. Deb, what is
0: crucial to include in your proposal? How do you make your proposals that odd?
1: Uh-huh. Oh... I feel like I told you to ask me that earlier. So I have a very precise formula. So the one thing that I always say is, even if you've gotten a yes, it ain't a yes until you sign the contract and you start the work. And you just have to know that. And I don't care how excited they seem. It ain't done until you have a contract and you start the work. So a proposal is still part of the sales process. And given that it's still part of the sales process, I approach it as if I'm still convincing them I just might dial it back a bit. So the first thing is there is an order that I use, and I've experimented a lot, and this is kind of the one, which is I start with them. Because again, remember, it's all about them. It's not about me. (laughs) So I'm basically trying to tell this story here's the destination you want to get to. And I state that upfront. I reiterate to make sure we're clear about what their outcome is. And then I talk about if there's any particular circumstances or contexts that make that journey to that destination fraught or a little difficult or why it matters so much now, because I'm trying to help them to understand, yes, there is really some urgency to doing this. The next thing I do is I tell them how. So if you think about it as a journey, (laughs) I said, here's where you're trying to go. There's a mountain range in the middle, but you know what? Winter's coming, so we got to make this happen. And then the next thing I do is I say, okay, here's how we're going to get there. And that's where I basically map out the basics of a route to them. If it's a real high ticket client, if we're in the millions, they might want to see an actual work plan. Otherwise, I don't. I hit the highlights of here's what we're going to do, and I give them the reasons behind why we're going to do those things. So, if you want me to interview the stakeholders before a workshop, I say exactly why we're doing that because I don't want them to nickel and dime me on the price or the scope. I want them to understand there's a reason for everything. And then the last thing is to say, and you're going to need a guide. By the way, I'm the best you got. (laughs) So it's only at the very end that I will describe myself and my qualifications to be their guide on this journey. And that's the order I go in. I never put the price at the top. I put the price after I describe what the value is to them because they have no context to understand the price if they see it first. People get stuck on numbers. And they're already thinking, I don't want to pay that. So (laughs) I wait and I convince them that this is perfectly worth it. I also will often tier my price. So based on, and this, by the way, is magical, is if I hear them say that there's a whole bunch of different things that they want or potentially progressively higher outcomes that they actually want to achieve, I will do a three-tiered price the bottom tier, which I present first, is exactly what they said they wanted. It's the bottom tier. No matter what, you get what you said you wanted. And then there'll be something that will be that plus some other goodie on top of it that gets them greater value. Everything is expressed as value. Nothing is expressed as price. The price comes at the end after you describe the value of each tier. And then the top tier is If you really want to knock it out of the park, I mean, if you really want to compete on the big with the big kids, here's what you can do. And here's the value you would get. There is psychology behind this. Most people will go for the medium, at least the middle tier, because they don't want to just get the least. That sucks. So the least go for the middle one. And often they will go for the top one, or they will have the top one in mind. And as they start to work with you, they're like, you know what? I actually want that always expressed as value to them. Price comes at the end. And I tend to find that's a winning proposal.
0: That is amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah.
2: It's all right. So good. And it just reminds me of like when you're at a restaurant looking at the wine list, like you'll never pick the cheap wine and the most expensive wine is just ridiculous. So you think, oh, it's
1: always that. Exactly. I could at least go up a little. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right it. that's it
2: and one thing I am noting Deb as well that you, you use a lot of um, analogies and metaphors as you talk and I do believe that what from what I've learned from Alan is a very important conversational skill so people can relate to the processes that you are sharing so you're doing that in this conversation after uh, our last
4: question we'll go to Rose who's over in the UK Rose over to you thank you yeah absolutely gosh I'm hungry all this hot sauce and wine so <laughs> hi and hi, Deb I'm Rose from starttheconversation.uk. And yeah, I so enjoyed this, my goodness, right from the start. That very first description of, yeah, you've asked me a question, but let me ask you one first. That pattern disrupt, I think I've heard it called. I love that. And actually my main offering... Is a, pattern, is a pattern disrupt because what I do is suicide prevention education I teach people to wow. talk about suicide so they can prevent so they can save a life so my question really is about and it can link in a lot with actually your description that brilliant description of how your proposal uh, you write your proposals you're going in as a I think you said a decision maker solving decision maker disorder or something I love that yeah you're fixing a problem that's already there my work is more preventing something from happening preventing something unthinkable yes. from happening so I guess. My question to you is: Sorry, a long-winded question. Have you ever done any sort of preventative consultancy work where you're you've asked you've been asked to come in to stop something from happening that's not already happening now? If so, or even if you haven't, how would your proposal maybe be shifted? How would you shift that?
1: So I have done that. So I've been brought in when organizations are doing a merger, and there are a lot of humans with feelings, and there, <laughs> which is reasonable. And they're worried about loss of talent. They're worried about their best people jump and ship, which would be loss on so many levels. That's why the context piece is so important. And I will emphasize the risks more than I will emphasize the rewards. I emphasize both because the human brain wants to feel relief. And so I will talk about risk, but I always end with something about the reward because people have to feel like there is. in your case, the reward is more people being able to live, you know, their full lives. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would emphasize the risks a little bit more, and particularly the risks of not doing something. Yeah, I might also add a story. So some of the things that I've helped clients with when they're applying to get money from other people is. We will take what can often be dry technical stuff and we'll create a persona. And we'll put, we did this once with this guy named Anton, and Anton had this situation and it brought it to life in a way that other things could not.
4: Thank you. That's brilliant. And I've already got stories in my head I could share, and I haven't even yeah. thought to put that into my pitch where I know that people have had conversations with colleagues and save their life and that empowerment that comes with it and, and not yeah. to mention the life saved. So
1: you could put some poll quotes on the side. So even if you have quotes about how this has saved a life, there's no reason in a proposal not to, I mean, add a picture if you're able to, if you're not, then at least put a quote on the side and visually they'll look to it because it looks different than the rest of the proposal.
4: Sure. Thank you very useful. This whole thing has been fantastic.
2: I know. I just want to keep picking Deb's brain, but I know her brain does not come cheap. So So we are so grateful for this. The fact that we are so lucky to be here asking, just firing you these questions and for you to being so open and sharing your value, Deb, and your experience. And it's just an absolute blessing. And, And look, Deb really didn't even talk about social media. This is sort of one thing I really want to talk about is that last week we spoke about keeping your foot in the 1990s and just doing things the old school way and and having one-to-one relationships and conversations. And a lot of us get distracted with all those. uh, I'm the queen of distraction, right? With social media. So it's wonderful to hear you just bringing it back to earth with how you have built your business and what you do today. So Deb, if folks on this call and those listening would love to get in touch with you, see what you're up to, jump into one of your programs, can you please share where we can find you?
1: You bet. So easiest way to find me is craftofconsulting.com. And that's where actually you can get a whole bunch of free tools. So I have how to prep for a prospect meeting and how to send out you know templates for networking emails. I have all kinds of good juicy stuff <laughs> that you can just go and grab. The ideal client one is not on my website, but I will send that separately so that you get those. And then if you go to get help, it outlines the the different ways that that I help folks. The thing that I am most excited about right now is I actually did a course on how to get more consulting clients faster. So it's for consulting but it works obviously for facilitation and I basically take you step by step through I got nothing <laughs> All the way through how you actually close deals and book it. And I basically am just spilling all of my secret sauce in terms of of how to be able to do it. And it's also filled with tools because the intent is, is every time you do a module, you take an action. Mm -hmm. You do a module, you take an action. So actually by the end of it, you should have your first client or you should have your next client. And because you're part of Leanne's community, I'm going to, actually, if you're interested, I'm going to give you 25% off because I know you're in this for the right reasons. So I'm going to put into the show notes, the link to where you can find out more. And then if I did a very special coupon code just for you. So the coupon code is booked, all capital letters. You 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 can use it at any time. But basically what it is, it takes you step by step. You also get some free goodies. So I did actually do a mini course on how to define your ideal client market niche and value proposition. So you get that free, you can get some free video coaching. And then for a limited time, I'm going to be doing some group coaching and you can get in on that. Although you have one of the best here in Leanne's group.
2: Oh, and I think anyone listening to this can understand the value of your group coaching and just being able to pick up Uh, just various pieces from you, Deb. So again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to my co-host. Everyone give yourself like a round of applause, a pat on the back, wonderful questions and and conversations. I'll have to share the chat with everyone. There was some like really great reflections. And I think a lot of us will be replaying this and taking more on and looking at your website as well. So thanks, Deb, for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around. You've reached the end of another episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Connect with the show at firsttimefacilitator.com or follow me on Instagram at Leanne Hughes to find out what I'm up to during the week. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with someone who will also appreciate the insight and make it easier for yourself and subscribe to the show in your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and chat to you next week.